Welcome to the Jay Kim Show. This is your host, Jay Kim. I am an investor, author, and fitness entrepreneur. And for the first time in Asia, I sit down with the world's most brilliant minds in business, investing, and entrepreneurship. You'll learn all the secrets, strategies, and formulas to becoming a successful entrepreneur directly from the masters. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week with the goal of providing actionable insight to you, the listener, with every single episode. And now, on to the show. Today's guest is Kylie Ng, the managing partner of 500 Startups in Southeast Asia. Kylie is a rock star, entrepreneur, investor, and startup founder with a long history of success, starting from his very first substantial exit, which was a five-month-old daily deal group buying website that he created called Groupsmore. He sold this company to Groupon in 2011. Two years later, Kylie found his second exit, which was a social media news sharing website called Says.com. This one, he sold to a Malaysian media giant catch media and after he did that he spent some time angel investing very successfully mind you and then he went on to full-time investing uh, by joining the 500 startups group i met kylie uh several years back probably around 2012 when he had first joined the 500 startups collective as an entrepreneur in residence and we've just remained friends uh the whole time he is a very interesting guy super smart and uh towards the end he goes uh, pretty deep into some spiritual stuff, how he sees the world playing out, and the dramatic lifestyle change that he's made recently after having achieved success and wealth. Uh, I think you're going to find this one very interesting. Uh, Kylie is no stranger to the crowd here in Southeast Asia. Um, let's get right into the show. You're going to like this one. Kylie, thanks so much for joining the Jay Kim Show. It's, we're really excited to have you on the show. You're quite well known here within Southeast Asia and, and Asia, Greater Asia, and probably the U.S. You probably have a pretty decent following as well. Um, and why don't you, just for the guys tuning in, guys and gals tuning in from overseas or people perhaps that haven't heard of you, maybe you could give us a quick, quick intro of yourself, a uh, quick background, and how you became a successful entrepreneur. Oh man, I am the excitement is all mine, you know. I've just hit the big time, man. I'm the J Kim show now. <laughs> Watch out, world coming at ya. Yeah, you're right. You know, this I'm doing this for all my fans, all my fans out there, all these uh, screaming eight year old yeah, girls baby. and boys in kindergarten and <laughs> <laughs> you know. That's right. Yeah, so but yeah, okay, I'll give you I'll give you a quick spin and um um well I I, I, mean, I know you've accused me of being a successful entrepreneur. I, I, I identify myself more with the word uh, creative spirit. You know, I've been creating things from a very young age, maybe writing little poems all the way to writing songs and, you know, little things. And fast forward, you discover the powers of the Internet and you're hooked. You know, mm. um, next thing you know, I created the uh, I grew up in Malaysia, spent most of my life uh, doing stuff out in Malaysia. Um, I, first business I kind of got lucky with was an e-commerce business. Uh, it was the second largest e-commerce operations in my country, and um, we built it in three months. And then a Groupon um, decided to acquire it when they were expanding internationally. Wow, was that a uh, was it a group buying site as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a it okay. was a straight up clone, dude. You know, I just like right. decided to rip it off, like my partner and I. 
<laughs> well, it's funny because we had uh, I, I I had Danny Young on the show who did You Buy I Buy here in Hong Kong. Oh, he man. also he's, he's, they, he, he also exited the group on same. So. No, Danny and I yeah. were like brothers, man. Like he's yeah, man. Uh, we're part of the same like, group on Asia Mafia who kind of got lucky right. got lucky with some of those. But like I'm awesome. I'm really proud of the other business that I was building simultaneously. It's a media business called Says.com. Now, what I love about that business was that it was kind of like BuzzFeed before BuzzFeed, oh. um, and it became the largest, uh, largest news website in my country. And no, oh. no other online news site has as much audience as the uh, says.com and its sister sites uh, in the different languages that, that, that Malaysia has. And Malaysia's got the Malay language, it's got the Chinese language, and it's got the English language, right? So we got, we got them all. And uh, we don't make any money from banner ads at all. Like We've been selling sponsored contents sponsor stories um, from earlier on and yeah really proud of that business uh, we kind of um, merged it with a few other uh, sister sites as I mentioned and now it exists as a listed entity in the Malaysian Stock Exchange right. and um, nice. so after doing those two businesses I just um, wanted to spend more time with creative people right. who wanted to do things and um, I gave them money and spent some time with them building other businesses. You could accuse me of being an angel investor at the time. So I did some of that. Mm. And uh, so that went well for me. But I'll tell, you, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you one thing, Jay. At that time, though, being like this Malaysian kid who um, just wanted to do fun stuff, I always looked up to Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley was like the mecca of entrepreneurship. But you go right, there sure. and want to... You know, pay homage to the gods of entrepreneurship and tech mm-hmm, over mm-hmm. there, right? And be like sure. suck, right? So I kind of, right. yeah, I kind of had that kind of um, in my mind, and I said, you know what? All the stuff I'm doing out here in Malaysia is fun, but if I'm making it in the big leagues, I gotta go to the valley. So, right. so that was um, idea at the time. So, just for some context, what uh, what age were you? What year was this, and what age were you? At uh, that point? Well, I'm 32 right now. This year, I'd be 30. So this was four or five years ago. I was 28, 29. Yeah. Right. 20, 29. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 29. And so um, I got myself there um, by chance. Um, and I kind of identified like who I'd want to meet and, and who I want to jam with. And at the time, it was funny because most of the big Silicon Valley names and all the stuff that you read on TechCrunch, no one gave a shit about the outside world. Like right. TechCrunch was primarily covering American news. And um, a lot of it's very Valley-centric. Yes. And all the VC firms that um, I would want to meet and reach out to, no one cared about what was going on here in Southeast Asia. But there was mm-hmm. one brand, though, which stood out. Um, it was 500 Startups. Yep. Dave himself had made multiple trips down to Southeast Asia. And he'd be on Haji Lane in Singapore smoking shisha of entrepreneurs. And that kind of <laughs> got him into... Companies like Vicky, which eventually was sold for 200 million US dollars and other things. Yep. And so I kind of respected that, you know, it, sure. it kind of didn't fit the uh, negative stereotype of um, being too American centric, sort of. And I said, I have to meet Dave McClure. So I tried all ways, like different ways of uh, different intros, and I, I couldn't really score a meeting with him. Um, but eventually, um, through some U.S. embassy connections. Somehow I managed to trick his PA at a time that I was somebody important. Mm, nice. Yeah, so Dave granted me an audience and, and early in the morning, it was like 7 a.m. after he did a Geeks on a Plane trip, yep, like yep. two weeks out in Brazil or something crazy like that. And yep. so it was a morning slot. He was sleeping sleepy as shit. He's like, who the fuck are you? Why am I meeting you again? <laughs> <laughs> and I told him that's because I tricked your PA, man. Like I told her I was important. 
And hey, that's um, hustle right there, man. That's, 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 that's it, props. man. That's it. So I mean, yeah. we jam for a little bit. He really liked my story and how I got to the, how I got to the valley. You know what? Tell you how I hustled. I t- I'll tell you about that specific hustle. Tell us. Tell, tell us you. the story. Okay, so says.com, Um, as I mentioned, it was a media company, and mm. we did some work for the U.S. Embassy. They had this one program called the IVLP, International Visitor Leadership Program. It sounds boring as shit, but what happened was they wanted the the U.S. Embassy of Malaysia wanted to nominate me for this program. So I started Googling it. I was like, wait a minute. Tony Blair has been on it. Nicholas Sarkozy has been on it. All the yeah. prime ministers of my country has been on it. This is like something that you... Somewhat legit. legit yeah. yeah, this is legit. You like go for it before you become prime minister. So I was like, why why me? And so it turns out there was a time where Obama was big on Muslim country entrepreneurship and developing yeah. bi- bilateral relations or whatever. And so... I'm not Muslim, but I'm in a Muslim country and I happen to be an entrepreneur. And I did some good work for the Malaysian uh, U.S. Embassy in Malaysia. And so they wanted me on this program. And so when I got to the States uh, under this program, this, the, the program basically means they would connect me with people I want to be connected with. Mm. They take me on tour to mul- multiple states and meet with like important people in case I become an important person someday. <laughs> and, um, but what the people in the U.S. didn't get at the time was that they didn't get the memo that I wasn't going to be prime minister, right? <laughs> I wasn't, right. I wasn't yeah. a political figure. I'm just a local entrepreneur. Right. And so um, a lot of people thought I was somebody pretty important. And so I used that card to hustle my way to Dave. I love it. That I was love all, it. I mean, self there. But there were a few things though, Jay, I'll tell you. When I started to spend time in the Valley, I got Dave to invite me on one of his geeks, famous geeks on the plane trips. We mm-hmm. went to Tokyo, Hong Kong, China together. And later on, based on a relationship, um, he uh, invited me to become uh, 500 Startups' first entrepreneur in residence right. in their batch, the accelerator, the famous accelerator batches. And so that's right. That's, I think that's what I met you. That's when, when you we were met. The, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, that was it. That was it. Yep. That's when we met. That must have been what, 2012, I want to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of, kind of. Around it was there. in that period, yeah. yeah. That seems like a blur to me now. But So when I, when I started to spend time there working with, like, quote unquote, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, I was shocked. I shot because number one, it's almost as though there's no such thing as a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. These people came from all around the world. Mm. You know, the, in the in the accelerator itself, there were Russian accents. There were like a Japanese right. accents. There were people came from everywhere in Silicon Valley to build companies. So it was um, more rare that you find someone who lived and grown up in Mission Street in San Francisco or something and became an entrepreneur. That was like I didn't meet as many of those. I met a lot of international people. People came from out of town. That's number one. Second thing I found out was that a lot of people in Silicon Valley were not any much smarter than the people I met in Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia. They're not any smarter than people I met in Hong Kong. They were just, um, everyone's just hustling. And that's what we all have in common. We're all all in the dark and we're all trying to figure things out. But the third thing I realized is that in Silicon Valley, there was a world of difference in anywhere else in the world, was that Silicon Valley, if you build a company there, you would likely have some very useful friends. Right. You would have friends that you could meet at a bar who was a product manager at Facebook or knew some other VCs who would give you some advice which was actually applicable. Whereas that if you grew up in Hong Kong or you grew up in Malaysia, Singapore, or whatever, at the time, most of your friends are doing things which were less useful to you. Correct. Right? So yep. you didn't have any friends in high places, any friends connect you with capital or resources or find you your next um, kind of like a CTO or something. It's, 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 it, you just had more... Less, less useful friends um, right. if you were building right. a startup. And it was then I said that 
it, it kind of demystified Silicon Valley for me. It was in a place mm. where everyone are unicorn magicians running around. It, it's just a place where where hustlers meet, and um, except that there, there's there's more friends. So I told myself, I said, this can't be right. Like we need to be in a world where everyone has friends who can help them. You know, it can't be concentrated in one place. And coincidentally, that's how a lot of people at 500 felt as well. And that's how yeah. Dave felt. And that's what the mission of 500 was to do, was to wire up the rest of the world so entrepreneurs can be supported by other entrepreneurs in peer circles and and everyone can build companies a little bit more with a higher degree of success, higher chance, a higher probability of success. So that way, the innovation and the proliferation of wealth creation didn't need to be concentrated in one place, in one country. You know, we'd have a world where income disparity and wealth distribution is, is more equitable, or at least you have more opportunity, access to opportunity. And, and it began with something as simple as making sure people had useful friends who can help them. Yeah, that's pretty interesting, actually, because uh, interesting point and story that you come up with, because one of the reasons that I was attracted to your crew there at 500 Startups was just that, was the sort of international aspect of it. And I remember distinctly uh, Dave talking to, I want to say it was either PG or Sam Altman at one point, and they were all, you know, YC guys are all, obviously, they're like, okay, the Valley is, Silicon Valley is, is the only place that you can build a startup. Kind of like Wall Street's the only place that, you know, the finances happens in the world. Yep. Dave obviously is on the other end of the spectrum. And I really think that I, I, it's very enjoyable. And I enjoy sitting back and watching his crusade around the world, basically spreading the gospel um, that, you know, there's a very, there's a tons of pockets of innovation uh, globally. Absolutely. And it's, it's uh, you know, I, I think it'll be, it'll be quite interesting to see how the game ends or I mean it's not gonna end, but what the score is gonna be in say 10, 15 years. Oh, it's gonna be such <laughs> a different world, man. I'm telling you. And, it is, right? and like even the world that we spoke of in 2013 or whatnot, like it's already changed so much. Like today you've got other crusaders like Jack Ma, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, showing you you can have idea you can have you can build a company out of China that's bigger than Amazon and eBay combined. That's right. And it's just this one in Mahayoshi son of Softbank. You know, he's clearly funding and fueling some of the biggest companies around the world with how SoftBank invests. And more and more, you'll see um, other business leaders from around the world tell their story. And the media machine, because you see, you see a lot of this interrelated to media because the whole world consumes a lot of American media, right? That's right. Fact. And so a lot of the perception of what the world is, um, it goes through that lens, and so the Jack Ma's and the Mahayoshi Sons are getting more coverage by global media slash uh, Western American media. And hence, like, these stories are starting to become more mainstream. Right. right. And uh, so this is the beginning because the innovation already exists everywhere. And these big companies exist everywhere. And now the stories are being told. So it's not to say that the, these large companies and innovations, and, and does, they do not exist. It's just that the stories are less told. And yep. now the stories yep. are getting more told. And so I think the storytelling yep. is as important as the actual existence of all of this um, innovation that we talk about. And I'm really proud to be able to be fighting this crusade alongside other individuals who are out to build these companies, to fund and support these companies, as well as to tell their stories. Because 500 Startups, is we pride ourselves to be 
to at least be a bit marketing centric, you know, to have like a, a, a very large angel list following, large Twitter, right. Facebook following. Um, we have a few personalities within 500 startups who are local legends. And maybe this is where we can segment the story to the next phase of it, right? Where I got myself more involved with 500. I just fell in love with what they wanted to do for the world. And so I decided to come up with an idea of Dave. I told Dave, I said, hey, Dave, why not you let me run the 500 show in Southeast Asia? And he's like, mm-hmm. okay, that's an idea. But I'm not sure if you're the right guy. He's like, you know what, Dave? I'm not sure if I'm the right guy either, but it's going to be fun. And so <laughs> from that, like, uh, we came up with a little MVP to create a fund called mm-hmm. 500 Durians. Ah, right. Yes. Yeah. So that's where we created a Southeast Asia dedicated fund. And it was only ten million US dollars. It'd be easy enough for me to raise. I raised that pretty quickly. I would use that as a working model of a micro fund that mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. it works, we will have a playbook that we can replicate in many parts of the world. Right. And so that was the idea. And so I went to work. Within a short span of like a couple of months, I was investing in I think it was like seventy companies in the first years. And so we expanded the fund to twenty five million US dollars. We ended up I'm investing in a total of 120 companies in two years, which wow. represented about 20% of all the publicized deals in the region at the time. We were fortunate enough to be early in companies like Grab, which is a $3.5 billion company today. Yep. Um, early in Carousel and uh, Bukalapak. And these companies mm-hmm. are what we call Centaurs, which are $100 million to almost a billion. And, yep. and the stats, the odds are looking pretty good. Out of 120 companies, we have 40 companies who have uh, went beyond seed. Uh, one company is written off. Three companies look like they're going to die. But for the most part, like 40 of them have, have gone to the next stage. And a lot of them are still very new. So um, things are looking pretty good. Now, as a result of doing all of that, what we discovered was the playbook itself on how right. we can replicate that. And so I went to right. work to help to replicate that. Uh, working alongside Dave, we recruited fund managers in Thailand, specifically Vietnam, Japan, Korea, Middle East, Turkey specifically, Canada, we started to recruit fund managers for vertical-specific funds like fintech and, mm-hmm. and mobile. Mm-hmm. And so, mobile, yep. yeah, and so, so we sprouted out 10 different micro funds and we're putting the playbook to work, you know, wow. and the playbook uh, to work where if we can get local legends, serial entrepreneurs and experts in their field and turn them into a fund manager and operate a micro fund to invest at scale and to create these communities, local communities, entrepreneurs supporting each other. When we seed enough companies, it creates a critical mass. It sparks a startup revolution that will attract series A, B, C, D investors to invest in that region or that vertical. So that is the thesis. And we're in the midst of it right now. We're, you know, going through the kinks, trying to work out the kinks, you know, and as with any startup story or any good endeavor, not everything goes to plan. So we're kind of like navigating around things, augmenting, iterating, um, mm-hmm. This playbook across, a, and and in 2017 you'll see like version two of the playbook, and we'll be piling on some new funds um, based on the learnings we have from what I call batch zero of what I call 500 VCs. And right. at some point we talk about how the world will look in five or ten years. I'd like the world to have 500 VCs operating on a on a model where we can turn entrepreneurial and expert talent 
into fund managers and support the next generation of startup revolution in every part of the world. What do you say to people, to critiques that, that come in and say, look, these guys at 500, they are all over the map. They are, they are spreading themselves too thin. They are spraying and praying. They don't know what they're doing. How can you be a master of all? What do you, what do you say to, when you hear things like that, you know, direct, directed towards you directly or to, to 500 in general? Well, I've heard critiques like that all my life about me. So <laughs> I'm kind of an expert in ignoring a lot of things in my life. And I think that to the extent you can ignore unimportant things to your mission, it correlates with your success. And so at the same time, though, that a lot of these critiques are very valid and important because we see a lot of the struggles internally as we try to do what we do. Um, I'll tell you a bit about scalability. What mm. scales well is when every single new customer you take on, the experience gets better. That's scaling. Right. If every customer you power on, the experience per customer gets poorer, you're not scaling. And so with that in mind, to scale 500 startups to the ambitions that we have, to be able to fund hundreds and thousands of startups in every corner on earth, successful startups, I might add, every new startup we power on needs to have a better and better experience. And so this is something right. that we're trying to work through and we've got different cases where it is very, very true and cases where it is not true. And so how can we deal with it and work with it? I would love, what I do is I love paying attention to the internal critiques from my team, from my okay. portfolio, from my entrepreneurs, and from my investors, for the LPs who invest in us. You know, that's why when I met you at PreMoney, and like, uh, you know, I really appreciate the support because I know you invested in Fund 2, right? I think it, it was, right? Yep. Um, yep. I really appreciate Early Believer right here is that when we interface with you guys, when we have the, the LP events where there are hundreds of you come together and we, we hear you out, that's the stuff I want to pay attention to. Now, the people who don't matter as much, the haters are going to hate, players going to play, you know, got to shake them off, <laughs> right? Um, wise words of wisdom, Taylor Swift right there. That's yeah, right. I mean, that, that stuff will continue forever. And the way the media machine works is that the more successful you get and the more in the public eye you'll get, more journalists want to pull you down, more people who commentators, armchair commentators want to pull you down, and that's okay. You know, that's just part of the game, right? It's part of the journey, right? right? So, so I got to be very cognizant of what I pay attention to and how do I sequence and prioritize what to fix. So that's, uh, so that's, that's kind of like the general philosophical response. But at the core of it, the direct response to like the spray and pray and the thing, like our funds have been delivering consistent returns. And in the world of fund management, a lot of like uh, LPs do vintage diversification, which means they don't know, even if it's a good VC, they don't know which fund actually is going to return money. Because if they didn't strike the Googles and the Facebooks, they may not return as much money. So they try to invest in many multiple vintages of the same fund so they can diversify across. But we are baking diversification into one fund by investing in many companies. And it's producing very predictable returns. And this predictability is a new thing for something as risky as startup investing. This predictability and diversification is a very new thing for seed investing, where it's perceived to be even riskier. Well, taking that risk away is our intention. That's right. And, um, and, to the, and it'll, we'll take another five years to show across multiple funds that we've launched that we've achieved this. And, but this is what we believe in. And this is what we work on every day. Okay, so let's let's take let's take it down one further level. Let's take it to your to the to the more granular level of what Kylie does on a day to day basis. So right. you're obviously 
whatever you want to call it, spray or pray or, or savvy investing, let's call it savvy investing, you probably see hundreds and hundreds of pitch decks that cross your desk every single day. So what differentiates yep. a company that uh, comes across your desk what makes it a good product versus a fundable product? Okay, so first off, when you think about a granular level and what I do day to day, building quality deal pipelines, I would say is, is as important or even more important than this whole nuance of selection. I'll tell you why. Let's say, J. Kim, you're a popular guy with a popular show. And so people know you. They want you. They want you in your deals because you're well connected. So... You're going to see more deals and you're going to see deals, hopefully, from people who are, who are good entrepreneurs. Right. Now, you've got a good friend, so your friends would share deals with you. Now, if you pick 10 deals that your high-profile friends that you've had on the show, the Danny Youngs, the Gary Vs, if they're going to pass you a deal, you know they've looked at it and their reputation's at stake if they pass you a piece of turd. Right. Now, they're not going to pass you some turds. You know, they're going right. to filter that through before they pass it to you. Now, if you look at 10 deals from your friends... Versus 10 deals that are spam or 10 deals that you just randomly bump to at some event. Even if you are a shit stock picker, you're, you're terrible at selection, you would pick from a pool of 10 good companies. That's right. Right? So with that kind of extreme um, example in mind, um, what we do at 500 is with a very visible media brand and with very tight relationships with co-investors mm-hmm. and... We, I, I pride myself in, in respecting these relationships and respecting the media attention we get, especially in Southeast Asia where I operate 500 durians, um, especially now in our second fund. We respect that a lot and I cultivate that because that's the source of a lot of good deals. And my entrepreneurs, now we have 100 plus the 10 new companies in fund two, we have 130 companies. Now my entrepreneurs, they get a lot of deals too because they're the local heroes. Right. You know, they get deals from their alumni network and whatnot. And they'll then pass me deals that they think is good. And their reputation's at stake. I respect those relationships. I look at those deals. Now, having an influx of highly recommended deals is a privilege. And the ability to invest in many companies becomes easier because I'm selecting from a curated pool of deals. And this takes years for five for Dave. He spent twenty years in the valley to build this relationship right. network. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I spent years building it in Southeast Asia, and that's something we cultivate and respect. And so, when we quote unquote uh, select a lot of companies, we're selecting from a very good pool. So, number two, right. now the filters we have, we are very strict with the filters we have, and this may go against a lot of conventional filters. And so, you ask a question about a good company versus a fundable company. I like companies who who understand unit economics, who have a very clear sense of who the customer is, and who have returning customers, and who have an idea on how to spend money to get them. Classically, this is the 500 way. Right. Now, will these companies, will they have like huge grants, scheme like huge unicorn level ambitions or ideas? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But what we do know is that they're pretty fundable if, if they can get themselves to a working product and they got options and they can grow from there. And so because of this, today I look at my portfolio and we have a lot of companies which can weather any storm. They don't, mm. Some are in a position where they don't need to even fundraise because their cash flow break even. Right. I've got companies where mm, when I invested in them, they're profitable. And today they're still profitable. And so even though I'm a seed investor, I seem to be only check in there because they just don't need even more money. 
and I love being part of these companies. And I'm not to That's say such a great, yeah. it's a great place to be. It's not and not to say like I avoid companies who spend a lot of money to grow. I mean, I'm obviously invested in companies that grab right and and these fast growing machines. This this you know, at the time of seed investing, you just never know which one's going to be the big one. All of them look kind of the same. Strong entrepreneurs, good teams, kind of clear sense of product, business model you may be familiar with. But which of them will become the fast-growing unicorns is so, so hard to know in the early stages. It's so hard to know. And that's where selecting from a good pool and selecting many of them comes in. Right. Okay, so so let's not to not to pick favorites now, but from the companies in your portfolio. And not, let's not talk about Grab. We obviously know about that one or the Centaurs. Can you give us one or two companies that you're very excited about? Not to not to pick favorites again. Mm. You know, like a, I'm a, I'm a parent now, so I fully understand that I, I love both of my daughters equally. <laughs> uh, <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, right. Okay, so you're asking to, for me to pick out some of my companies I'm most excited about. Okay, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll give you two things. One is a trend impacting emerging market e-commerce investing, mm-hmm. and that leads to the companies that I really like. Now, what we see of e-commerce, um, how e-commerce uh, developed in developed markets is you start with a lot of the horizontal marketplaces, the Ebays and Amazons. Right. And then later on, you see the honest company, you see mm, kind of neat companies built on verticals. Mm. Well, with Southeast Asia, what's happened is that a lot of the platform companies, the Lazadas and the Bukalapax, you know, and Carousels, they're kind of like mm-hmm. platform to sell anything and everything. They're kind of there. Yep. Right now, we're going into the age of verticals. Now, with this verticals, it's, it's also spurred by something else. Is that customer acquisition cost has never been this high. Facebook and Google are bidding platforms. So the more players they are, the more expensive it gets. Right. A lot of people don't model this in into their projections. And as a result, you may have a lot of e-commerce companies which are going through a tough time. Now, what I'm really, really pleased about is a... A pool, a pool of companies that I've selected because I kind of knew that was the case in a lot of developed markets so emerging markets would go in this path I picked a lot of like product companies who create their own products or have like at least a exclusive set of products so that way they don't have to play the commodity game and fight with other people who have the same products because if you wanted to buy a pair of Nike shoes, you could go on Zappos, you could go on Amazon, you could go on Nike shoes, you can go anywhere, you're going to look for the cheapest price, right? That's commodity game. But if you're going to get Warby Parker, you're going to get right. it from Warby Parker, right? And if, let's say you get Warby Parker off Amazon, that's because, like, you still get it from Warby Parker anyway. You know what I mean? So, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so investing in the Warby, Parker, the Warby Parkers, like, that's something that I care about. One such company, it's a company called Brodo, B-R-O dot D-O. Okay. When I met these guys, they were, they were skeptical. They didn't, they haven't even heard of venture capital, man. You know, they, <laughs> they were like kids in university who thought it'd be a cool idea to make their own shoes. Right. And that's what they did. And they sold it off Instagram. The first run was 30 shoes, which was completely sold out on Instagram. And it continued nice. just selling on Instagram, selling e-commerce. Now, when I told them about venture capital and talked to them, they were like, they, they didn't believe it. They're like, not interested. I don't know what kind of weird scheme you have not interested six months later after scheduling them and the friends um, and working through like common context here in Indonesia they decided to take a closer look at what I had to offer so I wanted to put together a round with other VCs a lot of VCs who looked at them said that hey they're not a tech company you're like a shoe company I'm like that that's right <laughs> but um, Jakarta itself has 25 million Facebook users you can advertise to 
and of which 18 million of them are millennials, and mm. and Brodo has a cult following. Every shoe they produce gets sold out. I mean, they're onto something. And so I did the deal alone, and that's rare for 500 uh, startups because right. um, we don't mind. We, we kind of like investing with other entrepreneurs, other investors as well. And but I did it alone. And so when I invested in them, they're doing a million plus US dollars GMV and profitable. Now they just closed out 2016, doing about more than three million US dollars and still profitable. And their return, based on modeling after their return users and the, the cohorts of returning users, without any additional funding, 2017, they'll easily clear five million US dollars worth of sales. Wow. So why do I love a company like Brodo? Is because I can uh, tie in venture debt. Venture debt is not as um, it's still quite new in Southeast Asia. But like mm-hmm. the, the, the folks who provide venture debt, they've been providing venture debt to a lot of my companies as well. And I can jack Brodo up with venture debt. And I don't need to rely on other VCs to put money in. That way, as a seed investor, I don't get diluted so much. And the founder doesn't get diluted so much. And we may do a very large VC on much later. But for now, and following one or two years, they can grow on organic profits and they can grow on, on getting debt and, and, and inventory financing. Now, this is a beautiful position to be in. When you look at Indonesia, and you notice that most of the shoes are imported, that most of the expensive shoes are imported. Import tariffs are high, they're pretty expensive. And so Brodo's making export quality shoes with a cult following. And now they've got six stores. When they opened their stores, like I saw pictures of it, it was like they launched an iPhone 8 or something. People are lining up all the way to the center of the mall. <laughs> and, and they're so innovative, they're giving a free shoe cleaning, lifetime shoe cleaning. Like, so if you buy a Brodo shoe, you come back, you'll clean your shoe to fix your shoe for free. If you need oh, new that. materials, then maybe then you need to pay for the material. But they've been having their customers bring their other shoes to them to, to fix. And they're like, yeah, all right, we'll fix your other shoes for free too. Even though you didn't buy from Brodo, but you're a Brodo awesome. customer. So they're building this following of returning uh, customers right to their business. And it's cool. It's so cool. Now, it's like back to basics, right? Yeah, <laughs> man. And, and, and so this is just one example. I've got another one doing headscarves. They call hijab. Yep, yep. Hijab's like two months away from cash flow break even. All the seed investors, we cut. We immediately put more money and insiders round into it. Because in December, they had 77% of returning buyers. And that's, that's trailing crazy. off average. The whole average of you is 60% returning buyers. You know, they, they clear easily. Three, in December, they cleared 300 grand worth of GMV wow. in one month alone. Um, spending only eight thousand in fully loaded customer acquisition costs, yeah. and there's another baby wipes company, that, like kind of like the honest company in Southeast Asia. They're called Apple Crumby. They produce okay. their own wipes, which uh, organic wipes, with margins up to seventy percent as well. And it's these companies, man. I'm telling you, that create products that people love and want with cult following. They don't have to be slave to the Facebook and Google platform game. That's right. They don't need to spend too much money on customer acquisition because they spend it once and the customers keep coming back. It's as simple as that. Back to basics, yep. man. So, yep. so I picked out these three companies just to tell you a bit of a story and insight into emerging market investing. In every single emerging market, there's a lot of people who don't want to pay import prices for foreign products who want good stuff, who want yep. really good stuff, and they will be loyal to this good stuff. Hey. All right, man. Listen, uh, well, listen, I'm not, I don't want to keep you too long, but I, ha- I do have a couple more questions for you, okay? You've been a, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to label this again to you, okay? You're not going to like it, but you've been a successful entrepreneur. You've been a, you've built a number of companies, you've exited them. You have been a, you've pretty much proven yourself to be a very successful investor, angel investor, and institutional investor. 
you, for the audience that doesn't know, you've also been featured on the cover of Men's Health. <laughs> just plug you there for that. So, uh, so it seems like you've done quite a good job and you're only turning 32, 33. So what do you have in store for 2017? What are your goals? And what, what, do you, what do you want to achieve in this next several years um, while, you're, while you're there at 500? Uh, all right. Um, okay. It's a good, good question. Now, okay, this is, this is kind of what I care about right now. And um, I think this is how the story, not just my story, but I think the story of tech and the story of capitalism is evolving. And we're going to get into some deep stuff over here, but I'm going to try to um, be as open about it as possible. The world's at a, a, a state of dissatisfaction because yes, the right. middle class is feeling all these things. And then like the people who are trying to make it, they're trying to move to the city and they're trying to get by. So they're powering the sharing economy. They're the Uber drivers and the Grab drivers, you know, but I, I don't know how far they're succeeding as well. You know, I'm mean, sure you've taken Ubers in San Francisco mm -hmm. and you talk to the drivers. I don't think they're very happy people. Right. In fact, there's a lot of people in San Francisco who are not happy at all because all the tech bros are moving in, jacking rent up, you know, and everything's getting all gentrified and getting more expensive. And um, it's creating a lot of distance between the haves and have-nots. Mm. And I think, I don't get too political in the U.S. because that's not my area of expertise, but I mean, of course people in the Midwest weren't very happy and a lot of them did vote for Trump as well. And so, mm. and that's not just an American story, it's the same in a lot of emerging markets too, you know? So I live in Malaysia where there's a lot of folks who are not happy. In Indonesia, they had riots here in Jakarta about the local government. Oh, yeah. um, there is a big swath of people who feel that they've been left out of the capitalistic machine. They've been left mm. out of the new economy. They're not part of it and they're getting disintermediated. And so, because the world is in this state right now, I, for one, care a lot about questioning the, the, the root of capitalism itself. Like what, how can we augment capitalism to be more inclusive? How can we be more financially inclusive? And, and it almost builds a bit of a disgust sometimes where you go to some pitch events, let's say in, in, in Silicon Valley, where... Some entrepreneur is telling you, yeah, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to revolutionize food delivery. And that way your kind of ramen can arrive two minutes faster than Uber Eats or something. And there are all these people migrating to Lagos and all these people moving to the city and trying to make ends meet. And the whole world, there's so, many, so much suffering in this world. And you're going to help some folks in San Francisco get the ramen two minutes faster? Well, fuck you. You know, you're not changing the world and I don't care, yeah. you know, because it's, it's yeah. a very noble thing to get your ramen two minutes faster because I would like my ramen two minutes faster. But don't say you're changing the world. Don't say that. You're not. Okay. You're just changing ramen speed. Okay. So, so how does it get resolved is that we need to have a conversation around compassionate capitalism where you're treating people better, where you're kind of including more people with the businesses you build. And you're kind of including other countries in the tech startup game. We want to get some countries who do not have as many seed investments, make sure they've got a ton of seed investments so they can have a, a, a trickle-down effect or a ripple effect where local heroes breed more stories of local heroes. Where mm. the saviors of the economy, they don't have to be um, somebody from another country. It could be your neighbor. You know, you could build... Big companies, your neighbor could build a big company, so you can build a big company too. You can take the economy in your own hands. Right. And so, and that's going to help more countries. You don't have like, uh, in part of a rich become rich and poor become poorer, at least you have like richer countries, poorer countries. We don't have rich countries become rich and poor countries become poorer. 
at least you can have a more even kind of like companies, that's why countries being kind of satisfied with their financial state and they feel like they've got a seat at the table and they're playing a game. They, they can they can be good at playing a game. And and so that way they don't have to resort to um, joining ISIS. You know, the, le- the people who are left out and displaced in the world, they don't feel they've got to resort to crime. They don't have to resort to petty theft and they don't have to resort to joining terrorism to be able to make ends meet. We need to include them in the winning game. So in short, I would love to spread weapons of mass creation to everyone. It, it seems here today that we're spreading math and science as, you know, we're teaching math and science to as many kids in the world as possible and still not enough kids know math and science because we think of math and science is important. Well, you know what? Taking matters in your own hands and building businesses, now that's a skill that everybody should learn as well. Mm. You know, and I think that that's um, part of the story. One day, 50, 60 years maybe, I don't know, from now, everyone feels that they, they can become a micropreneur of their own and the whole structure of jobs and employment you know sharing economy will be the norm everyone can kind of freelance with multiple gigs everyone's kind of like small business owner kind of back in the old days you know where everyone's kind of a little blacksmith or artisanal jam maker or something you know everyone's got their own game and everyone's all part of this system that hopefully is uh, would be a bit more equitable than the dark ages right and uh so that's kind of where it kind of strings together but there's one more thing jay apart from the financial economic game itself what's that when does it end how much money is enough, right? And you go to Costco right now, you and I, let's take a walk in Costco, man. How many bags of carrots do you want, man? How many bags of carrots do you need to have? How much paper towels do you want? And, you know, if the the, 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 the spirit of consumerism overrides everything else, nothing is ever enough. You will buy more paper towels you don't need, Jay. You're going to buy more cars, more houses, more whatever. You just buy all the buy, 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 buy. And because you're buying all this shit, um, companies just want to produce more shit, so they're going to rape Earth, they're going to kill animals, they're going to do all kinds of crazy shit just because they want to get your money. Yep. So your money That's is right. making them do all this shit, man. It's a vicious circle, man. Oh, and it's not going to end. It's not going to end. So it's a- man, you're you're going really deep here. So tell me, tell me about yourself then. So what what are you gonna do about this whole thing? Me, I don't want to. I don't want to fix anybody else's life. I'm just fix my own, and that's why I did it in 2016. I'm a minimalist now. I give away a ton of my shit. I operate in six or seven units of clothes, and I made a me and my 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 partner uh, Eliza. We've put on a a map of like 50 years financial model on how much we can give away every single year. That's like my operating system awesome. like when it comes to even uh, uh, so we were tracking our finances on how little can we live on so we have more to give away and we're just building it into the model and it's not that's something you don't hear very and often. it's not easy because we're used to a lot of comforts man like i just you know i just sure. just now I, i'm a bit i'm actually under the weather right now I'm, i've got a bit of a flu so i broke my fever and i was sweating and i had like my shirt was damp mm. and what did I do? I had to buy a new shirt because I didn't want to be cold on this call, right? I didn't want to fall more ill. So I've got the privilege of being able to buy a shirt whenever I want, right? But yep. And so it pained me to go buy a new shirt because I'm trying to live on less, right? So that's one. And what I'm doing for myself as well is also the food I eat. Like um, throughout last year, you know, I've been experimenting with dieting and fitness. You know, we mentioned the men's mm. health thing. I was eating yep. so much meat, man, just to get my protein. I was eating so much eggs. I was farting at my colleagues in their face all the time. And like, so like, uh, I, I cut out eggs, I cut out pork, I cut out beef, I cut, 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 cut. And now I'm, I've been vegan for eight months plus, strictly vegan. Wow. And it's easy, man. I'm measuring my body fat and my mass, you know, like I'm still lean, I'm still fit, I'm still strong. You know, I just, I can still go through what I want to go through and physically and, and I love it. And I don't have to, awesome. I, I can be on this earth and plants is enough for me. I can po- be powered by plants. I even went for full blood tests. I've been monitoring. I quantify a lot of my health. I'm great. 
I'm doing great. Amazing. And so if I can live on Earth without uh, eating any animals or hurting any animals, if I can live on Earth without needing to buy a ton of shit all the time, I'm sure that makes a difference to me at least and the people around me. And if I can live this example and I can go through life without needing more validation, ego stroking and, and, and from other people, I have enough, I have enough self-love for myself, I think I would have more energy to provide for other people. And so that's where it's going to lead. And I don't know what's going to happen, man. You asked me five, seven years, I don't know. I just know that this is the new operating system that I'm operating on. I've like uninstalled like the previous system, yep. added some new features, uh, fixed a couple of bugs. This is the new release of my Kylie Ng iOS app, right? I love it. I love it. And it's so refreshing, especially, especially in this sort of industry that you're in that I'm in you know I mean it's it's just one direction only for the most part so I like I like seeing this innovative iOS that you've installed I might need to get a copy of that oh myself. man I'm telling you man and this is this is the this is the next thing we're gonna go into this post capitalistic world um, I hope humanity will go through another renaissance era where they're gonna integrate not just like science and arts but also spirituality yeah uh, yep. they're gonna integrate financial know-how and the more human beings can integrate their emotions, their logic, their, um, their capitalistic ability with the spiritual quest, you know, and, and if they can include a lot of people in this quest, you know, the, the world's problems are going to be solved by people helping people, by people being kind to people, people just loving each other and loving themselves. That's how a lot of the world's issues are going to be solved. And it's not going to be solved by me, you know, Dude. it's going to be solved by all of us, by Jay Kim, man, and, and all the guests That's on the right. Jay Kim show, man. One podcast guest at a time. Damn right, man. Dude, thanks so much, man. Thanks for the honesty at the end there. You went really deep. I don't know what's in that spinach you're eating, but I want to have get my hands on some. Uh, I know you're a little bit under the weather, so I hope you feel better. But thanks for your time, Kylie. I really appreciate it. What is the best place that my listeners can find you, follow you? Where do you want their yeah, attention? Yeah, Facebook is the center of it all right now. Um, so if you if you go to facebook.com slash Kylie, everything's there. Mm -hmm. I also have a website called Kylie.com where it links to all my other social media presence. Um, mm -hmm. And I'll be posting up more writing. I hope to do more video this year to kind of um, include this in the broader narrative. Yeah. Just include my story in the broader narrative so we can discuss these things as things evolve. And so on Instagram, it's Kylie Young. K-H-A-I-L-E-E-N-G. Nice. And um, yeah, you're going to follow me and I would I would love to meet other like minds who are on the same quest, you know? Like, Amazing. Yeah, join our quest, man. Join the quest. All right, Kylie, thanks quest. so okay. much. We'll link it all up for you and uh, yeah, I can't wait to hang out again, man. Let me know when That's you're That's right, man. I'm down, I'm down pretty soon, man. I'll drop you a text, man. Right. Okay? It's been my pleasure. I love all you right, very much. All right, take care, brother. Right, take care. Yep. All right, bye-bye. Right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Don't forget to join us next week for another exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. I'd love to hear your comments. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer, J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you guys next week. This podcast is brought to you by Hack Your Fitness, the high achiever's guide to getting ripped in under three hours a week. 
If you're anything like me, you're probably working a full-time job or jobs and trying to find time to balance family life, social life, and last but not least, fitness. Look, I get it. I'm a full-time investor and entrepreneur myself and father of two. So how am I able to stay fit year-round without spending hours and hours in the gym killing myself on the cardio machine? After struggling for the last 15 years trying every workout and diet under the sun, I finally designed a system that allows me to achieve and maintain single-digit body fat for life in under 3 hours a week. Cardio not required. Head on over to hackyour.fitness and download my free 13-page guide that teaches you the simple science behind efficient fitness and smart nutrition and gives you everything you need to know to finally take control of your life. That's hackyour.fitness.